hope you all had a great 4th of July last week, and I hope you've been doing well. I missed our time together last week, and I missed our teaching times on the attributes of God the two weeks before that, but those were some sweet fellowship times for me those two weeks before when we had the ice cream fellowship, and then the week before the VBS family night. It's been a several fun weeks for us with that, but I am excited about getting back into our study of the attributes of God, and we're going to press on with this, and this should now take us all the way through Thanksgiving to finish out this study with a few special things along the way with some prayer meetings and go family nights. We'll mix in a few things, but we're going to keep going with the study all the way up until Thanksgiving on that. As we begin tonight, we're going to be picking back up with the topic of God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. We're dealing with the knowledge of God, and if you want the big word for it, it's omniscience. God is omniscient. Now, before we get into what all that means, I just want you to see that in two different places in Scripture. And this is on your handout, which I hope you all have a copy of tonight. But the first is Psalm 139, and we're going to look at this text again later tonight. But just look for God's knowledge as we go through this text. Psalm 139, 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it's all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. As we think about God's knowledge tonight, like we do with all the attributes, our desire, our prayers, this is not just some theoretical, theological exercise. My desire is this will lead us to worship because this is very personal about our lives. God knows us. He knows when we sit down. He knows when we get up. He knows our thoughts. He knows our words before we say it. And then like the psalmist says, that last line in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And so my prayer in this is it would lead us to worship God in response. And the second is Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Sorry for the extra C there. When I copied this out of the Bible program, it has a little you know, footnotes in your Bible. And I forgot to take this out, so it looks like chiz, but it's his. So great is our Lord and abundant power. His understanding is beyond measure. Friends, it's not just that God's knowledge is much bigger than ours. His knowledge is so much vaster than ours, it's beyond measure. Nothing can measure God's knowledge. Now, what do we do with all that? I love what A.W. Pink says about it. He says, each of his glorious attributes should render him honorable in our esteem. The apprehension of his omniscience ought to bow us in adoration before him. Yet how little do we meditate upon this divine perfection. And that is my desire tonight with this, that we would bow before him in adoration. What a great prayer for us that this, that this attribute, all the attributes of God would lead us to that. So turn the page, page number two. I want us to do a quick review because it's been three weeks since we, actually four weeks since we have, were last together and doing this study. I want to make sure we're all on the same page, so to speak, of what we're talking about. We're talking about the attributes. Attributes are simply characteristics. When we talk about the attributes of God, the definition I gave you from W.T. Connor back at the beginning of the study was this. The attributes of God are those qualities or characteristics of the divine being by virtue of which he is distinguished from all created beings and without which he would not be worthy of the worship and the service of man. So it's not just his characteristics. It is that, but it's the characteristics that set God apart, the characteristics that lead us to worship him in response. Now, we've looked at five so far in our study that we've done this summer. We started back at the beginning of summer with God's unity. If you remember, just a quick review, unity is the attribute of God that he, all of his attributes are fully there all the time. His attributes don't fight. God's not like, well, I'm in a merciful mood today. I'm in a wrathful mood today. Like, God is fully all the attributes all the time. His attributes don't fight against each other. He's always the same in that. The second one we looked at was God's eternality. This is relationship to time, that God is outside of time. This is the one that, for me, stretches my mind so much. He is outside of time, no beginning, no end, but he sees all time equally 
vividly. And so we talked about God being eternal and all that. Spirituality, number three, this is that God is immaterial. What is God made of? Well, nothing. God is just God. And because that, he has no limitations. So we talked about God being a spirit. Then we looked at God's omnipresence. Omni means all presence where he is. That God is everywhere. And we talked about there's nowhere we can flee from God's presence. That God is everywhere all the time. He is always there. And then we lastly looked right before we took our break on God's immutability. This means he's unchanging. Which again, friends, I've said it before. This gives me a lot of hope. Because how terrifying it would be if we woke up in the morning wondering what mood is God in today. And thankfully we don't have to ever do that. And so we wake up and God is consistent. He's the same. His promises hold true. Now, with that said, there's a big category change. All those were what we call the incommunicable. Those were the attributes of God that he does not share with us. Those are unique to God. Well, now we're getting into a new category tonight and through the rest of our study. These are what we call the communicable attributes of God. These are the attributes that God shares, that he communicates with us. But the key word here is in part. These are attributes that, that God shares, but in part, we don't have them in full. You and I can't be eternal. You and I can't be everywhere. That would be really nice to be more than one place at once sometimes, right? You know, we can't do those things. We, we're not invisible. We don't have all these characteristics. Those were incommunicable, very different. But now we come to ones that we can share in part. God is a love. We can show love. God is a God of justice, and we can fight for justice. God is a God of wrath, and there is a place for holy, righteous anger against sin. And so we can convey in part these attributes of God. These are the ones when you go to Ephesians 5, 1, which says, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is what we're imitating, these communicable, these shared attributes. When we're to be imitators of God, I'm not trying to become one who is invisible. Or when I'm trying to be, be an imitator of God, I'm not trying to become one who can be everywhere at once. But when I'm trying to be an imitator of God, I'm trying to be one who shows love and mercy and justice and all these things. So you'll see how that all fits together as we go through the study on that. So let's start with our very first of our communicable attributes of God. And there are many. Again, it'll take us till Thanksgiving on this one. The first one is God is omniscient. This term simply, if you break it down, omni, all, science, knowledge. This is all knowledge of things. There's different ways of trying to define it. And so like usual, I want to give you several different definitions. Timothy George, who's a dean of Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, defines God's omniscience, his knowledge as his comprehensive knowledge of all that was, is, and ever shall be. So past, present, future, everything, God knows it fully, everything. The author A.W. Pink said this, He knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events and all creatures of the past, the present, the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven and earth and in hell. And again, if you look at the numbers, there's more than 7 billion people on earth to realize that God is acquainted with every detail in the life of every being it's just mind-boggling on that. We always go back to Wayne Gruden because he's one of my favorites, and I just really always like the way he defines stuff. He says, God fully knows himself in all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. He always knows everything. In one simple eternal act, he knows everything. If you want more Gruden definitions, that book is in our book resource center out in the hall. So I try to pull this together into my definition for us that we're going to work off of, and this is simply this. What is God's omniscience, God's knowledge? It means that God fully knows everything all the time. That's about as simple as I can get it down to. God fully knows everything all of the time. Now turn the page to page three, because like we've mentioned several times before, when we come to the attributes of God, we're not trying to reason these. We're not trying to infer these. We're trying to look to God's revelation of how, who he's shown himself to be. We're not trying to look at our human nature and go, okay, how could this possibly explain God? We're trying to look to the Bible and say, God, you show us who you are. And God's omniscience is revealed throughout all of Scripture in many different ways. 
Let's start with the book of Job, which I don't know if you've noticed, almost every week we're quoting Job on the attributes of God. It's not the book most of us go to for our devotional reading in the morning for the fun of it, but it's a rich book, and it's one that shows us so much of God's character. So Job chapter 37, verse 16. Do you know the, do the balancings of the clouds? The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. So there you have it. God is perfect in his knowledge. Or how about Psalm 147, 5? Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure, which is what I mentioned at the beginning. It's not just his understanding is big. His knowledge is vast. His knowledge is, friends, it's infinite. His knowledge is so great, it's impossible for anyone to measure. Put all the human brain power and all the earth and all the computers all together, and they still couldn't measure God's knowledge because it's so big, so vast. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. That God sees everything. Nothing escapes his notice on that. And that would include what's happening on Mars right now, if something was happening on Mars. What's happening on Mars and where the craters are is not escaping God's notice. Where the comets are out there is not escaping God's notice. How many little ice particles in the rings around Saturn are not escaping God's notice? He knows how many ice particles around Saturn right now. He knows everything in the universe and everything here as well. Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, but it gets much more personal to our lives. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. He sees everything, even things that no person on this planet will ever know. He sees because he sees what's in secret. He sees into the depths of our soul as well. John chapter 21, verse 7. This is Jesus talking. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, and I love this confession, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So a side note there, when Jesus is asking, do you love me? He's not asking to gain information. God doesn't need our information. He already knows it all. He's asking to give Peter this chance to confess here. He's teaching him with the questions on that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom he must give an account. God sees everything. Or 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Friends, he knows what's happening in your heart and your soul right now. Now, with that said, that's just a sampling of scripture passages that show us that God knows everything, that his knowledge is vast, his knowledge is infinite, his knowledge is perfect. But we need to make two clarifications when we talk about knowledge, because yes, it's a communicable attribute, but the attribute is not in the same way we would understand. First of all, the clarification, God does not know in the same way that we know. So let me ask you, you you talk back to me, how do we know something? What's that? We just know it? So how do we come to the place of just knowing it? Experience? What else? We're taught? What else? What's that? We observe, yeah. So we're taught, we observe, we have to have intake of something for us to know things. We have observation, contemplation, discussion with others, we do research, we use our faculties to acquire knowledge. God does not have to acquire knowledge. God doesn't have to observe to know things. God's eyes aren't going to and fro trying to figure out what's happening. God already knows what's happening on that. His knowledge is fully comprehensive. I just put it there. Simply, God just knows. I have you a quote here from James Pettigrew Boyce, who is one of the founders of Southern Seminary. I love what he wrote. He said, There is in him nothing corresponding to observation, comparison, generalization, deduction, process of reasoning, by which we pass from one step to another. 
or the contemplation or conjecture of suppositions or theories by which we account for facts. His, God's knowledge, is his essence or nature knowing. It is not something acquired, but something belonging to that nature itself and identical with it. So again, I simplify that down to my simpler English to God just knows. He doesn't have to learn it. He just simply knows. So if you ask God, God, how many grains of sand are on this island right off the coast of Florida? Well, if we were to do that, how would we know that? Well, we could go out there, we could start counting, and we'd never finish, right? We'd have to count one, two, three, four. Or we could do deduction. We could go, okay, I'm going to take this square, this one yard by one yard, and there's this many grains of sand in that, so I'm going to measure the hole with the island. Okay, it's got this many grains of sand. That's how we do it. You ask God, God, how many grains of sand on there? He knows the exact number. Not because he quickly scanned an infinite eyesight and counted. He just already knew because he knew everything. You could ask God, God, how many grains of sand were on the whole planet 333 years ago? Boom, he knows the answer. Not because he's observing, but because he just knows. Knowledge is his being. Knowledge is of his essence. He knows everything on that. We were driving down the road this week when one of those torrential rainstorms hit, and my boys are in the back seat in their car seats, and, they, and, one, and Gray Jeremiah speaks up, and he's like, Daddy, there's 3,700 raindrops on our windshield right now. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's fascinating. I've been studying this. I'm like, how do you know that? He's like, well, I, I just kind of know that. And so it ends up he's just guessing, of course, right on that. But I, but I look back at him. I said, do you know who knows how many raindrops are on the windshield? He goes, God does. And so I was like, how does he know? He's like, I guess he counts them. Well, no, he doesn't count them. He just, that's the thing. He just knows. God knows right now how many raindrops are falling out of the sky at this very moment on planet Earth. Not because he's counting. He just knows. There's nothing that God does not know. Knowledge is at the core of his being on that. And with that, number two, God's knowledge can never increase. Remember, God is eternal. He sees all time equally vividly. God is outside of time, so he knows the future. So there's nothing for God to learn in that. That means you could ask God if you wanted to, God, how many grains of sand will there be in 135 days from now? He knows. He doesn't have to like go think ahead. Okay, and that no, he just knows. He knows everything on that. A.W. Tozer said it great. He said, God in one, and I love this phrase, effortless act. You know, and let me just pause there. Friends, for us to know is a lot of effort. I think back to my years in school, working on my master's and working on my PhD, that was years of effort. It wasn't easy. It took a lot of work. But for God, knowledge is effortless. He doesn't strain for it. He doesn't have to think. He doesn't, his brain doesn't hurt on this because he knows that knowledge is part of his being. So A.W. Tozer again, God in one effortless act knows instantly, not a little at a time, but instantly and perfectly all things that can be known. That's why I say that God cannot learn. And that is God's nature on that. So realize his knowledge is different than ours. So let's go to the turn the page to page four. What then does God know? Well, if you want an easy answer to jot down next to it, you can write the word everything. God knows everything. Well, what does everything include? Well, everything. I thought we'd define everything a little bit more to be helpful for us on this. So God knows everything, but our brains are finite and everything is such a big category. Our little finite brains hurt to think about everything, right? So here's trying to break down some of the everything that God knows. Number one, I think most importantly, God fully knows himself. When we talk about the knowledge of God, I think we need to start here. Remember, God is infinite. God is eternal. God is a spirit. God is immense. And so for him to know fully even himself is in itself absolutely stunning and amazing. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the, catch this phrase, even the depths of God. 
For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So the first thing God knows is something that we can't know fully, and that's he knows himself. Friends, we are dependent upon his revelation to know him. And God is so much bigger, so much greater. God, first and foremostly, knows himself. But number two, God fully knows every aspect of his creation. Some people call this his actual knowledge. This is kind of how the philosophers talk about it. This is his actual knowledge of everything that exists. And this is important because God is a sovereign Lord over all creation. So I want you to see it in several places in Scripture. Number, the first one, Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. God sees everything. He knows everything happening on the whole earth. Now, quick pause here. What's this about the eyes of the Lord? So let's jump back out of our attributes of God's study. Now go back to the, to the winter and spring, okay? How to understand the Bible study. So get our brains back on that one. We talked about figurative language. If you remember, God doesn't physically have eyes. God is a spirit. God is immaterial. When we see images of God's eyes, the arm of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. These are imageries. These are what we call anthropomorphic human terms to describe God to help us understand him. When we see the eyes of the Lord, this means God's knowledge, God's understanding, God's seeing things. It's not physical eyes. So just remember, this is kind of metaphorical language there for us. Then go back to Job again, which has got so much on the attributes of God. Job 28, 24. For he, God, looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Matthew chapter 10, 29 to 30. And it gets more personal for us here. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God's knowledge of everything is not just some impersonal stats on the grains of sand. He knows everything about you. He knows how many hairs are on your your head. He knows how many hairs fell out in the shower this morning. He knows all that, not because he's counting, because he knows fully everything all of the time. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 as well. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Friends, realize the whole vastness of the universe is laid bare before God. He knows everything. God knows where every atom is moving in the entire universe right now. He knows everything that happens to the tiniest detail, things that we can't even see, like scanning electron microscopes. God knows what's happening on those surfaces right now because he knows everything in that. And with that, that was not on your handout. Realize that means God knows everything that's happening in the unseen spiritual world as well. God knows every thought of every demon, every thought of every angel. He knows the, th- the very thoughts that Satan is thinking right now, Satan's strategy scheme. There is nothing that escapes his nose. He knows what's happening in the depths of hell right now. He knows everything. There's nothing that escapes his knowledge. And if something could escape his knowledge, he wouldn't be lord over it all. This is his lordship over all creation. But let's get it more personal here. Not just God knows everything about his creation. We're his creation as well. So number three, God fully knows us and other people as well. God doesn't just know what we do. God knows what we think. God knows what we feel. God knows our emotions and our heart on this. You know, when I talk to people sometimes, I'll be like, well, why did you do that? And they'll be like, I really don't know. Well, guess what? God knows why you did, even if we don't know the depths of our soul of why we did things. Because there's stuff in our past, there's stuff that we're going through, there's temptation. We don't always understand fully why we do what we do. Guess what? God knows why we do what we do. We can't even figure out what we do, much less figure out everything else in the universe, right? But God is so much bigger. He knows us fully. He knows all people fully 
as well. Look at several places in the scripture we see this. First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For, here's the reason, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Do you catch that? He searches all hearts. There's not a heart of a person who has ever lived on this planet that God didn't know the depths of why they did what they did. And he understands their plans and he understands our thoughts. Friends, God knows every thought you think, even if no one on the earth ever knows You've thought it. Psalm chapter 139, verses 2 through 4. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Again, there's our actions. I love this. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows what you're going to say to your spouse when you get home tonight, even though you don't know. God knows what you're going to say at work tomorrow, though you don't know that yet. God knows what you're going to say to your kid when your kid kind of pushes your button tomorrow night when you get home from work. He already knows what you're going to say. Even before you thought it, you felt it's coming out of your mouth, God already knows what you're going to say because he knows everything about you, past, present, and future. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 5. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. I know the things that come into your mind. And then John chapter 21, verse 17, and this, we already looked at this one briefly, but Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Notice Peter doesn't have to try to argue with Jesus. Now, here's the evidence. Jesus step A, B, C, D here. Here's how you know I love you. Here's my, here's my list. He just simply says and appeals to the fact, God, you already know my heart. You know what's in there, and I'm appealing to that. But before we go on, let me just say this. This is not just for believers. God knows what's happening in the hearts of all people, believers and unbelievers alike. You look at scripture of him turning the hearts of a king. We go back into Isaiah 44 and 45, when God raises up and he calls Cyrus, who's a pagan, to deliver God's people. God knows the hearts of all people. This is not just for the redeemed as well in this. And be amazed by that, friends. When I checked today, according to the researchers, there's 7.5 billion people on earth today. 7.5 billion Right now, God knows every heart, thought, motivation of every single one of the 7.5 billion people right now in that second. And not just in this second, but he knows how every one of the 7.5 billion people's heart motivation is going to change in the next five minutes. He knows what every one of the 7.5 billion people are going to be feeling in 30 minutes from now. He, He knows everything in that level of detail to the heart, the thought, the motivation, the actions of every one of the 7.5 billion people alive and everyone who's ever lived and ever will live. In one single instance, God knows all of that and it doesn't hurt him at all in his mind. It's not overwhelming to him in his mind in that because he knows everything. To turn the page, page number five there. What else does God know? God fully knows the future. This is part of his sovereign rule. He ordained the future. The future's not running out of control. It's accomplishing his purposes. He's ordained the way things are going to move. And so he already knows it. Again, let me quote A.W. Pink here. A.W. Pink says, God's knowledge of the future is as complete as is his knowledge of the past and the present. And that because the future depends entirely upon himself. Were it in any wise possible for something to occur apart from either the direct agency or permission of God, then that something would be independent of him and he would at once cease to be supreme. God's sovereign. He knows everything that will happen in the future. Now, we could quote lots of scriptures to show you this. I could go through basically any prophecy in the Bible is evidence that God knows the future because he tells us ahead of time what's 
going to happen. But let's look at just a few places we see specifically where God tells us he knows what's going to happen. We've already looked at Psalm 139 for, but it ties in here. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You know, it's what we're going to say before we say it. He knows what, right now what your very last word will be on this earth before you die. We don't know. We don't know when our last day is going to be, but he knows not only when our time is, but he knows what our final words are going to be. He knows everything. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Before they've even happened, God's saying, I can go ahead and tell you what's going to happen, because I already know it. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. This is an interesting point in relation to prayer. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases that the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. It's fun, when I was reading this week, A.W. Tozer goes on a rant about this. He was like, how much shorter and simpler and worshipful our prayers would be if we didn't try to give God information in our prayers? And he spends a few pages kind of ranting about this, but he's on to something here. We don't pray to give God information. God already knows. And then, thankfully, it's not true here, but apparently whatever church Tozer was part of, he complains about his deacons praying in the church services. And he goes on a little rant there about, they act like they're giving God information. We could shorten this by 30 minutes if they didn't try to inform God of what's happening. God already knows it. You know? But it's true, friends. When we go to God in prayer, God already knows what we're going to be praying. He knew we were going to be praying 10 trillion years ago. If there was a 10 trillion years ago, but that was before time. You know, God knows everything. And so we don't go to God to inform God. We go to God to commune with God and to seek his help and to worship him on that. Tragically, not all accept that God knows the future. We're not going to get into it, but there's, there's people whose books are sold in Christian bookstores who deny that God knows the future. It's called openness theology. That God is open. He's, trying, he's learning as we're learning. It's sometimes called process theology. That God is in process growing like we're growing. Friends, that's just heretical. God knows the future. God knows everything. I don't want to serve a God who's learning like I'm learning. The reason this is popular in our culture is because people have a hard time with what we often call the problem of evil. Well, well, why did God let 9-11 happen? And post-9-11, you see a lot of rise in this openness process theology. And you have people who are pastors and writers who are like, God didn't know it was going to happen. He feels deeply for your sorrow. Friends, God knows what's going to happen. Nothing catches God by surprise. But that just realize that's growing. You will hear people on TV. You will pick up books in Christian bookstores that unfortunately are written by people who, think, who deny this fundamental truth that God knows the future. So just be discerning in that. Now, I've got to exercise self-control in number five here. I love this part of God's knowledge here on this one. And this is God fully knows every possibility. So not just that God knows all things actual, past, present, and future. God doesn't just know every thought you, you think. God knows every thought you could think in any given situation. He knows that for all 7.5 billion people. If, if any situation changed, what every one of the 7.5 billion people would feel, think, and do or say in response to that changing situation. Sometimes we call this his middle knowledge. Now, when I hear middle knowledge, my mind goes to Lord of the Earth. This is not knowledge of, like, Middle Earth here. When we talk about middle knowledge, we're talking about the knowledge of all things possible, all things potential on this as well. Let me see if we can explain it better with these two quotes. James Boyce, he, God, knows all events that could possibly come to pass. This is based upon his infinite knowledge of himself and of all of his creatures. And so, friends, if God knows the depths of the thoughts, motivations, feelings of every one of the 7.5 billion people on earth, and he knows himself fully and completely fully, then he knows if a circumstance changes how you are going to respond in that situation because he knows you better than you. And he knows how he will respond in any changing situation well because he knows himself fully. 
the quote from William Lane Craig, who's a philosopher, apologetics guy. He says this, God's knowledge of what every possible free creature would do under any possible set of circumstances, and hence knowledge of those possible worlds which God can make actual. So again, that's just a big language to describe this idea of middle knowledge. Now, let me give you a disclaimer here. Not everyone agrees with me on middle knowledge here. There's a lot of theolo- there are some, maybe a lot, theologians and philosophers who deny this idea of middle knowledge. That's a whole philosophical debate. That's not the point of why we're here tonight. So if you disagree, that's okay. It's a tertiary doctrine. We're not going to divide over that one. But realize not everyone agrees over this idea of middle knowledge. They don't like all the possibilities that potentially go with it. To me, when I look at Scripture, this is, this is how I process things. The guy who won me over to this view was Bruce Ware, the guy who we brought in to talk about the Trinity, if you remember that from the spring. He's the guy who kind of, the Lord used to open my eyes, so to speak, to at least this way of thinking on it. So I want you to see several places in Scripture to where I believe we see this idea of middle knowledge, that God knows every possibility. 1 Samuel 23, verses 12 through 13. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hands of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Do you see what's happening here? David says, am I about to get conquered here? And God goes, yes, you're going to get conquered. So what does David do? He gets up and leaves and doesn't get conquered here. God told him what would happen if David remained, the possibilities, the middle knowledge. And so David, under the guidance of God, took a different route here so that that thing did not come to pass. How about 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 19? This is about Elisha talking to King Joash here. He says, then the man of God was angry with him. This is the king. He said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. And so he says to him, listen, you attacked three times, and yeah, damage was done. But these people are going to be a plague against you. If you had attacked two more times, you would have wiped them out permanently. He talks about the possibility, the middle knowledge of what would have happened in Israel's history had he attacked two more times here. And in Matthew chapter 11, this one just is mind-boggling to me in a lot of ways. This is Jesus speaking. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, you'll be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So you notice kind of those if-thens? If the works done had been, that you had seen had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. And then the same thing, if the works that had been done in Sodom had been done, they would have remained until this day. So the question raises, well, why didn't he do those works? We don't know. God's sovereign. We're not. He's infinite. We're not. We have to trust the mystery of his will on that. Now, before we get turned the page and get to the next thing, there's two other things I just want you to think about in terms of middle knowledge here on this one. One, again, be amazed with this. If God knows what I believe he does, knows every possibility, do you realize how staggering that is? Do you realize how much can change just if you drive home a different way? When you leave tonight and all of a sudden you're like, I don't think I want Chappies. I think I want to go to Chick-fil-A tonight. And you go a different way, drive a different route, talk to a different person, a different person sitting at the table, discouraged, hey, I need to go pray for that person. Everything changes based on that one simple decision of where you went to eat. But that one decision where you eat not only affects traffic patterns, it affects who you interact with and where those divine appointments are to talk to people. And God in his infant wisdom has got all that going through of all the possibilities of all 7.5 billion people right now at one point, and it's not like stressful to him. 
Because I have a hard time deciding where to go eat dinner some nights. And God sees how everything could play out differently in every possibility if I chose to go eat a different place and you chose to drive that way home instead and you talked to that person and called that friend instead. He knows how everything could be totally different if different situations happen. That absolutely blows my mind. God's knowledge is that vast on that. The second thing I want to say about middle knowledge, I think one reason it's so appealing to me is for me it gives me a framework to help me understand how God is absolutely sovereign and yet people are still accountable for their sins. Like you look at when Joseph was sold into slavery. There was nothing righteous about that. Joseph's brothers were clearly in sin. But when, when they finally appear before Joseph in Egypt, he says to them, once he reveals his identity, he said, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It wasn't God saw this and was like, oh, how can I redeem this? Oh, show this somebody. Oh, good, we'll let him deliver for the people. God had ordained for Joseph to be there. It was no action that Joseph was there to deliver the people. But yet, when Joseph's brothers stand before the Lord, they can't be like, see, God, you ordained it. We're okay. Let us off the hook. Well, no, they clearly sinned. How are they accountable? And yet, still God's sovereign plans happen. Middle knowledge, to me, becomes the framework to try to help answer that. Who gave Joseph the dream? God. What does God know about Joseph? Like me, he runs his mouth all the time. So what dream did God give Joseph? Gave, gave Joseph the exact dream, knowing all possibilities that would incite the right anger in the brothers, so God's not in causing the sin. God is the, setting the stage, if you will, the scene, so the, the brothers' free actions there, yes, they'll give an account for it because they chose to do that, but they're part achieving God's sovereign purpose. That's to me where middle knowledge fits in on this. Same thing with Jesus going to the cross. It was ordained before the foundation of the world. When Jesus came, God wasn't up in heaven being like, oh no, the religious leaders hate him. Oh, what am I going to do? This is part of God's sovereign plan. But when the religious leaders who killed Jesus, they're not going to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat and he'd be like, hey, thanks for doing what I want you to do. You're off the hook. They sinned in this. They're guilty, but yet God was sovereign of this. How does that work? Middle knowledge. God knows all possibilities. So Jesus says the very things he says that we're going through in John, and it creates a situation to where their sinful choices are still under the sovereignty of God, and yet God is somehow not the author of evil. So Anyway, I didn't mean to get into all that. Sorry, that is a little soapbox side note, and I said I exercise self-control, but I went too far down that one. So we can go get a cup of coffee and talk more about that if you want to. Just turn the page to page six before I go more on middle knowledge on that. <clears throat> if God knows everything, this raises my but wait question for us. And that's this, does God remember my sins? If God knows everything, but he says he forgets my sins, look at Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. What do you do with that? Well, I put it on your hand out there. God not remembering sins does not mean that God does not know of our sins. God knows every single sinful thought, feeling, word, and action, and he always will. Rather, this is an image. Remember, go back to figurative language from our last study. It's an image to show us that he forgives us our sins. There's no longer a separation. When it says that God remembers our sins no more, it's not like he has Alzheimer's and forgot it. He still sees it, but when he sees it, he also sees the blood of Christ, and he sees forgiveness, and he doesn't hold that sin against us because Christ has forgiven us. So he knows it, but he doesn't hold it against us because he also knows the cross, if that makes sense. Now, two more things before we go to our discussion. This is what we said was a communicable attribute. This is an attribute that God shares in part with us. We are, this is how we can imitate God in one way. How so? God has made us rational creatures who can know. Our knowledge is in a small part a reflection of being made in the image of God. There's a lot that goes into being made in the image of God, and our knowledge is part of it. Now, there's some smart animals out there, but no animal is as smart as a human being made in the image of God. 
You look at God's creation, and yet animals can do some cool stuff, but animals don't build civilizations, and they don't have libraries, and they don't have a quest for knowledge. Why? Because this is part of us being in God's image. We have knowledge. We can learn knowledge. We can grow in knowledge. We can gain more and more knowledge. This is because we're made in God's image. With that said, though, remember that he shares this attribute with us in part. Our knowledge is limited, and here's four limitations for us in our knowledge just to be reminded of. Number one, our knowledge is dependent upon God. Friends, we can know nothing unless God has ordained that we can know it. So the fact that we can learn and study and go have science classes and go to school, that's just common grace. We're made in his image, all people, believer, non-believer alike. And so it's common grace is that we are able to grow in knowledge. But it's spiritually to know him, that requires revelation. So knowledge is dependent upon him, him giving us minds that can think, him giving us common grace that we all can explore and learn together, believer and unbeliever alike. But for believers, it is us having his revelation so we might know him. We are dependent upon God. God is dependent upon nothing. Number two, our knowledge does not include the future. Friends, we only know things once it exists. I can't tell you what's going to happen when I get home tonight. I can guess, but I don't know what's going to happen. You don't either. But God does. God knows the future. Number three, we cannot know each other's thoughts, motivations, or intentions. We can only see each other's actions and words. We don't know what's happening in each other's hearts and their motives. God does. Our knowledge is limited. And let me just say here, side note, when we do marriage counseling with couples, if people would get their mind around this, it would save a lot of marriage conflicts, okay? How many marriage conflicts in your marriage, or friends, how many conflicts between your friends have been, you meant to, dot, dot, dot. You were trying to, dot, dot, dot. I know your motivation was dot, dot, dot. Friends, we can't do that. Only God can see the heart. Rather, you and I can say, Hey, what I'm seeing in your actions and words leads me to think that perhaps this is what you're doing. Can you explain it to me? And do you know how quickly marriage conflicts start getting solved when we start going with questions instead of accusations? So just side note, there's the marriage counseling trivia for the night here. But our knowledge is limited. This is not in the same way. God knows our thoughts. God knows our motivation. God knows our intentions. We cannot know that of one another because we are not God. And the number four, our knowledge is very, 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 probably add about ten more varies there, okay? Very, 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 very limited in its scope. We can only know a little bit in this. This is a quote from Sir Isaac Newton, the famous scientist. And when he was an old man, someone one time went up to him and approached him and said, you have tremendous knowledge, sir. And here was his response to them. This man was, who was so brilliant. I remind myself of a little boy walking along the seashore picking up shells. The boy has a handful of shells in his little hand, but all around him is the vast seashore stretching all directions as far as the eye can see. All that I know is simply a handful of seashells, but the vast universe of God is filled with knowledge that I do not possess. What a great attitude from one whom God gave so much human knowledge to, right? This man who was so brilliant, who far exceeded any of us in his brilliance and knowledge, he understood his knowledge to be like a handful of seashells, looking over the vastness of the ocean, going, that's God's knowledge right there for us. So realize those limitations. Yes, we can know. And friends, learning is a discipline. One of the books in the hallway out there is Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, Don Whitney. And he has a whole chapter about learning. Because growing in our knowledge is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. That's why hopefully we know more than we knew five years ago, right? Even if we're not in school, hopefully we're still growing in life, wisdom, and knowledge. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But that's a discipline we cultivate to be growing in our knowledge on that. So it's communicable, but yet it has these four 
limitations, perhaps other limitations. Those were the four big ones I've thought of this week. Now, lastly, this attribute should lead us to two things. It should lead us, one, to pursue holiness, and two, it should lead us to worship. If God knows everything, friends, that should be a massive motivation, incentive, encouragement in our quest for holiness in our life and to fight sin. Listen to what A.W. Pink said, first quote there. Yet how little do we meditate upon this divine perfection? It is because the very thought of it fills us with uneasiness. How solemn is this fact? Nothing can be concealed from God. Though he be invisible to us, we are not so to him. Neither the darkest of night, the the closest curtains, nor the deepest dungeon can hide any sinner from the eyes of omniscience. It's not just God knows our actions. God knows those simple motivations, those simple thoughts, those simple fleeting feelings that you have. God knows, and we can't hide that from his sight. And you'll talk more in your discussion groups tonight about that. And then second of all, it should lead us to worship. Look at this quote also from Pink. He just, for some reason, A.W. Pink has tons of very quotable stuff on this particular attribute. He says, The apprehension of God's infinite knowledge should fill the Christian with adoration. The whole of my life stood open to his view from the beginning. He, God, foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding. Yet, nevertheless, Fix his heart upon me. Oh, how the realization of this should bow me in wonder and worship before him. Friends, God, before time began, already saw every sinful word, action, thought, feeling that we would have. And his kindness, he still opened our eyes to the gospel and drew us unto himself. That should lead us to worship him greatly because he knows all. So turn to page seven. Here's what I want us to do in our discussion groups for this evening. Number one, I'm giving you the first question I'm stealing from Wayne Grudem Systematic because it's a good one, I thought. When did God learn that you would be at the location you're in now, reading this sentence at this time of this day? How is this realization of your answer to this question a blessing to your life? So when did God know you're going to be sitting here in this sanctuary tonight reading this sentence in this discussion? And how is that a blessing to your life when you think about that? Number two, how should God's omniscience give us comfort and hope? God knows everything Where's the hope in that? How does that comfort you? How does that encourage you in that? Number three, how should God's omniscience encourage us to pray? I told you a little bit about A.W. Tozer's rant about praying and how we don't pray to inform God. But how should this reality actually encourage us to pray more and motivate us to pray and lead us to pray? Number four, I want you to review the scriptures back on page four. Those are the ones at the bottom. So just read these in your groups. At the bottom of page 4, the wonder God fully knows us. The First Chronicles 28.9, the Psalm 139, the Ezekiel 11, the John 21. And so thinking about the fact that God knows all of us, can we hide any thought or feeling from God? Hopefully you know the answer to that. But how should that truth help us strive for holiness? So put some feet to that thought of, well, this, this idea, this, this, this attribute of God should lead us to holiness. How so? In what ways? Number five, God's omniscience is a communicable attribute. So number one, how should that shape our attitude about learning in general? And number two, how should it shape our attitude towards the Word of God and the Bible study? Number six, how should God's omniscience, or in, in our lack of it, we don't know everything, impact how we relate to one another in community, especially if we're having a disagreement? Friends, we, we are sinners saved by grace, and even in the church, there's going to be times that we're going to clash and we're going to rub wrong because we have differing ideas. How does the fact that God knows everything and we don't change how we live together in community? And number seven, what songs do you know that include this? Okay, so I want us to divide up into several groups here. Let's get a group around Dave over here. I see Steve back there. I see Greg up here. I see CJ back there. That'll be four groups. Let's start with, I think that'll be good. Let's try those four groups right now. And if we need to divide up again, we'll, we'll do one more, okay?